Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone. It's Dr. Yee here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. Welcome back, everyone, to an episode here that is particularly special because it is um, at least 50% written by my wife. This was a collaborative effort in here, and she did some amazing research and stuff, and I'm really proud of her going into this. It was 90% research? No, it was 90% complaining, 10% research. Yeah, but considering that we're talking about stuff with Russian history, uh, a lot of people complained, and a lot of awful things happened. So you know what? Gabby, yours is just one voice among many that pretty much ended in tragedy. Wow. Wait. (laughs) The tragedy was in this case you having to work on developing this in the first place. Okay, good. But it's not nearly as tragic as what happened to a number of the people that we're going to be talking about here in the first place. Some parts funny, though. But then, of course, that's just tragically funny. Well, you want to hear what's tragically funny. I started researching this episode. And posted about it in like my little Instagram channel. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm writing about this Russian succession crisis and it's hilarious. And like the very next day, the very next day I woke up and they were like, oh, my gosh, Russia's in a civil war. And I was like, oh, God, (laughs) the timing. It just looks so bad. It's true because you wrote this. Let's see. You were working on this on Saturday, which was I was working on this on Friday. And then Saturday morning while you were streaming, everybody was talking about it. And I was like, wait, what did I miss? Because I woke up like super late and I was like, what? Did I miss? If anyone is confused about what we're talking about and they don't really know, considering that we're recording this right now on June 26th of 2023, like two days ago, uh, there was a almost coup in Russia with the Wagner private military group that went on to, well, not quite overthrow the government, but it was a whole incident. And you can look into that because I don't know when you all are listening to this, if it's like a week after or 10 years after, who knows when someone is actually listening to this. But uh, yeah, that's the context of all of that when she was literally working on this episode. Anyway, before we go ahead and begin with the story here today, I just want to remind each and every person out there that there's a multitude of ways that they could support us, whether they're looking at Patreon or anything like that, if they want some ad-free content, or also if you want to actually go on an adventure with us, we are going to be leading two different trips over the course of the next 11 months, the first being to go to Japan. And the second one that we are filling up slots for now, and they're going fast, is to go to Italy this coming spring. So if you are interested and you want to go on a trip with us, please check the description of this podcast because the early bird specials for it are getting like $100 off. The Japan trip only has one more spot for the entire trip. And the Italy trip only has a few more spots with the early bird discount. It's true. Right. So if you all want to go and join us for that, then please do. But besides that, I think it's time that we go ahead and jump into today's episode. Gabby, do you want to kick us off since this is the whole thing that you were talking about in the beginning? Okay, but I had to stress this before we actually begin on all of this. The amount of times that I'm working, recording a video in the garage, and I get a series of texts like, oh my God, this thing happened. Like, what the hell am I even reading? What is going on here right now? It's just 
I was getting live reaction tweets, basically, of Gabby learning about really messed up stuff in Russian history and how much of a mess this whole thing was. It was actually not even like that messed up. It's like, you know, ever watch a 90s soap opera where yeah. the guy dies and then like the evil twin comes back, but everybody yeah. thinks it's the guy. And then he's like, no, I'm his evil twin. And you're like, oh, it was like that. But yes. just Russian history in the yes. 1600s. So basically, if you don't already know, this podcast episode, it was supposed to be about the Romanov family, but trying to set up the stage with the Romanov family to come into power, I had to go through the time of troubles. And then I got so fascinated by all of the trouble in that time that I just kept going with the time of troubles. So this is like the Romanov family's rise to power and the time of troubles. It's they a go 90s, hand in hand. It's a 90s Spanish tele, uh, telenovela, except set in Russia. Because my big thing with history is I get very bored when reading all of the really dense historical content. But mm -hmm. this was definitely like, it was better than any book you can read. So anyway, let's get into it. So the Romanov family was the last imperial dynasty to rule Russia. They ruled from 1613 until February of 1917, which we all know it ended Horribly for them, right? World well, War One. Maybe we don't all know, but I'm just going to tell you now because we'll do another episode all about the Romanovs. It ended really badly for them. Yes, it did. So over the course of those three centuries, they had many well-known rulers as part of their lengthy succession. Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, Alexander I, Nicholas II. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of really big names, I think. Yeah. There's a lot of TV shows covering Russian royalty. Actually, now that I listed it off, they're really popular in like drama. I mean, they're big figures. Russia was always, when you look at stuff in history, the, um, it was referred to as the sleeping bear because it was such a large entity that had so much potential. But that was the word that was always used. So in the same way that people think of like the yellow scare that they had in the, in the 1990 or 1900s and 1800s where they feared the potential rise of Japan as a empire in Asia and then the rise of China as an industrial power. Before all of that and the fear of the rise in Asia was the fear of the rise of Russia because its population drastically outclassed every other European state. It was just so horribly backwards that it was like, oh, well, it's a threat, but it's not really a threat. So if it ever rose, people were always like watching Russia like, what if? That hasn't changed. Everyone's currently watching Russia like, what if? <laughs> so it's, it's quite topical. Yes. Anyway, how exactly did this Romanov family rise to power? So back in the 1500s, there was a time in Russia called the Time of Troubles. And it began when the last ruler of the Rurik dynasty, he was Fyodor I, died. During this time, there was no order in the country because everybody after Fyodor died was like, hey, I'm the I ruler. I be in charge. Yeah. Which, I mean, that's what anyone would do because he, he did have an heir. But his heir was not set in stone. Basically, they did not want him to take over the country. So right after his death, his brother-in-law, Boris God, God, Godunov? Godunov. God, Godunov. Took over. It's like good enough, but it's good enough because um, he wasn't good. <laughs> well, <laughs> Boris Godunov took over and he was immediately faced with a time of famine. So could you imagine you get into power immediately? No food. So over the course of 1601 to 1603, almost a third of the Russian population died to this famine. Oh, yeah, no big deal. It's no, just, not it, a big deal at all. Russian Obviously, history. Obviously, there was already unrest within the country because the, uh, oh, what are they called? The boyars, which yeah, is the basically boyars. Russian nobility. 
they were in charge. They did. They they wanted power. They wanted to control the leader of the country. And the peasants were revolting at this time because obviously there's no food and there's also like a succession crisis. And then foreign powers in the country eating itself were like, this is the perfect time to get involved. So Boris was just dealing with the worst of the worst. Remember how I said foreign powers were getting involved? Well, Boris also had to deal with a Polish-supported pretender to the throne who was pretending to be the half-brother of Fyodor. And his name was Dimitri. And remember that name because Dimitri is going to come back to haunt us multiple freaking times. The evil the twin. Time. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, it's the evil twin and then the evil twin again. The evil twin twin. So we love, we love Dimitri. Anyway, he was pretending to be the half-brother of the late Tsar, Fyodor. And we know he was pretending because the real Dimitri had died in 1591. So when Boris died in April of 1605, his son was killed by a mob and made the false Dmitry Tsar in June of 1605. This was short-lived, however, because the boyars, who were the Russian upper class that dealt with state administration, it was basically the nobles of the land. Yep. They couldn't really control him. Like, that's the thing. So if anyone is confused about what it is for a boyar, and I need to kind of specify this, when we're talking about Eastern nobility versus Western nobility, this is this like 1500s going into the 1600s. If anything, the boyars are closer to what you would have expected of French nobility in like the eight or nine hundreds. Remember that point where we've talked about France and just how incredibly decentralized it was, where you had the king, but the king didn't really have any real power in comparison to the nobles that were under him. The nobles were the real authority that governed the majority of the country directly. They call the shots, basically. Yeah, that was kind of the case of the boyars in many circumstances, because you could have minor boyars or grand boyars. It really just depended because some could control a little bit of land or huge swaths of land with their own people that were under them. And these influential individuals were the ones who were, I mean, in order for the Tsar to do anything, he needed the support of the boyars. You wouldn't be able to do anything otherwise, right? So... Yeah, that, 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 that is what is going on at the time. And they basically realized they could not control their new czar at all. And when they realized this when he refused to have his Polish wife convert to Russian Orthodoxy, which was the tradition, like whoever married into the family of the ruling you Russian family, you had to convert. And to be fair, that's like the standard of what you would have seen in pretty much any societies. Remember when we did the whole thing on Catherine the Great? I mean, she had to convert. Well, you she did it willingly. split, I guess, the religious power within your own country that would oh yeah imagine like if you and me because we're different religions basically Mm -hmm. if you and me rule that country how would that work you're gonna side with the king or you're gonna side with the queen it's gonna split your own population because they're gonna be like okay well it's normal to be this other religion right Mm -hmm. anyway so the boyars realizing that he would not have his wife convert specifically vasily shuskai and shuskai is the guy who helped get him into power in the first place This guy quickly changed his mind and wanted him removed from the throne. And the ironic thing here is that Shuskai is actually the man that originally reported that the real Dimitri was dead years before. Like he saw him kill himself, came back and told everyone, hey, he killed himself. But then he quickly backtracked on that when he wanted this false Dimitri to get power. He was like, oh, no, he didn't kill himself. This is the guy. Well, anyway. It was just politics. The just moment, like clean politics. The moment he realized he did not want Dimitri in power, he goes to all of the other boyars and he's like, hey guys, this is a great time to remind you all that I specifically said he was dead years ago. 
Like he he just he turned on him that quick. He just went to them and he was like, "Oh no, this guy's fake." I I'm saw just him conveniently die. remembering at this exact moment. Yeah, exactly. So then, by May of 1606, they had the false Dimitri assassinated. And here's the thing: they really went fucking overkill here because they made sure to cremate his body and then dramatically fire his ashes from a cannon in the direction of Poland, which because is where his life screw is. that guy. We don't even care about those Catholics <laughs> over there. Fire. So. Talk about uncertainty and turmoil. Like, (laughs) I don't even know what's going on. And it only gets worse from here. Like, no wonder the peasants were revolting. Nobody even knows who's in charge at this point in time. Hey, everyone. It's you here. And before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. So anyway... (laughs) After the false Dimitri was assassinated, Vasily Shuskai, the same very powerful noble that got him assassinated, ends up taking the throne. Who would have thought? Who'd oh, yeah, thought? no, no, totally. I did this of my own volition to save the Russian people, not totally because um, I saw it as a convenient way for me to then seize power afterwards. But this specific event was the beginning of the time of troubles. So Shuskai, like Boris, who we discussed earlier, was also faced with the same series of unfortunate he- events. He had Boyar's support, but he faced so many peasant rebellions and also so many pretenders. In fact, there was a second false Dimitri. But this guy was I actually supported. I feel like supported. at this exact moment, I need to insert a dun dun dun. <laughs> like, like when we went to the Ren Fair yesterday. And it's like, it really is like that here. Just with a dramatic look behind me. Is Dimitri. I'm just so confused. Like, this had to have been something that they knew would work. Like, they knew that if they just established themselves as a leader and they had power, people would just go with it. Because at this point, nobody knew what the fuck was going on. Oh, yeah, no, exactly. And with how unstable society was at that point, as long as you had the backing of individuals, you could pretty much claim it to do whatever it is you wanted. Well, it's like, um, oh, God, wasn't there the whole thing with this, uh, the, the, the guy's wife from before? Yeah, the, we're going to get to that. Oh, boy. So basically... Um, there was a second false symmetry, but this one was supported by the Polish and small landholders and the peasants. So this guy was way more popular than the first one. He had and some actual backing. He was way more popular than the Schuss guy, who is the current czar. So this is where things get interesting. The second false Dimitri, I'm going to call him Dimitri Dos because <laughs> there's a lot of them that come up. He was recognized by the first false Dimitri's wife as her husband. So she wanted power. This was her last Hail Mary to actually become like the queen, mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah. So she goes, oh, no, 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 no. He looks nothing. Absolutely nothing. Like the first, you know, my, my other husband. But this guy, this, this is my husband. So that gave him like more of a claim to the throne. So the like, actual legitimacy of like the thing that was illegitimate, but it looks more legitimate Who's going to believe that some wife is saying, oh, yeah, yeah, this random man is my, hu-. I mean, really, who's going to think that? So it legitimized him a lot more. Because she really wanted power. So this Dimitri claimed to have escaped his assassination in 1606. Now, we need to remember that he was cremated and his ashes were literally launched in the direction of Poland out of a cannon. But he survived. 
He survived. He was like, oh, It was guys. just a scratch. It was merely a flesh wound. Like, there wasn't <laughs> any flesh to wound, mind you, but it was just a flesh wound. But we have to really focus on the fact that this guy isn't even pretending to be the original Dimitri. He's just pretending to be the first false Dimitri. So screw the original guy, I guess. So since he had the support of so many, Dimitri Dose set up camp at Tushino, and he besieged Moscow for actually two years, where he was joined by many boyars, including the Romanovs. And they just decided to start a new government to rival the other government that Shuiskai is running. So now we have Shuiskai, who is in Moscow, and we have Dimitri II in Tushino. Tushino. But this is where the Romanovs joined the Tushino side, so you can really tell who's going to prevail here. This is kind of already spoiling itself. I guess, well, technically speaking, we're talking about different aspects here in history. The amount of times that they could double-cross someone, you never know. Just because you started on one side does not mean that you're going to remain there. I'll, dun, give, dun, dun. I'll give you a prime example of it if we ever cover that story here. I, we did do the, um, the Three Kingdoms here, right? And I talked about Lu Bu. Yeah, we did. Yeah, Lu Bu. Um, it didn't matter what side he was on. He betrayed every Everybody. single commander that he ever worked with. And then nobody trusted him eventually exactly. because he was like, ah, oh, I'm on your side. No, screw you. I'm on your side. But didn't he succeed only because he betrayed so many people so many times? No, he was also a phenomenal warrior, apparently. Like he was, he was a, a good leader, but he was an insanely good frontline combat fighter. Like he was strong. In this case, though, this is, this is all pure politics of them just siding with people. <laughs> I think they just wanted the best for themselves and not the best for what? Russia. What? Nobles only looking out for themselves and not for the stability and safety of a nation? I feel like somebody needs to just go back in time, mess with the timeline by whispering one phrase into like the most powerful noble. Um, if you screw your own country over, you will have no power because you will have no country. That's it. That's it. And then they can leave. And see if that does anything. And then they respond with a singular word back. Fuck <clears> you. <throat> that was two. Nah. Oh my God. <laughs> nah. It's, up. it's fine. Okay, so we've talked about everything that was going on, but we only mentioned the Romanovs at Tushino. So when do they come into power? Well, actually, really soon, because everyone in charge for both sides is about to have a very, very bad time. So while elements of quote-unquote, Dmitry's army took control of the northern Russian provinces, Shuiskai decided, hey, let's, let's go to Sweden for some help because Sweden was already at war with Poland. So he went to Sweden for aid. The arrival of Swedish mercenary troops caused Dmitry to flee from Tushino, and some of his reporters, like supporters, returned to Moscow. And others joined the Polish king, Sigismund III, who then declared war on Muscovy in response to the Swedish king's intervention. And in September of 1609, he led an army into Russia and defeated Shuiskai's forces. So what happens in an unstable period when your monarch gets defeated? Well, your own people will turn on you. What? No way. <laughs> You'd no way that in such an unstable period, that the moment that something goes wrong for an individual, that everyone is going to abandon them. It's it's. You see that in modern day friend groups. Yeah. Never like look, you no expect way. basically it on a worse scale to a monarch. You know yeah, what I'm saying? the stakes are like what way higher here. What the heck was that? I think someone just launched a firework and it's definitely not picked up by this, but Gabby just reacted to it <laughs> I'm because so sorry. It's, it's like a week before 4th of July and people are already <laughs> launching fireworks illegally here. I'm terrified of fireworks. Also, people are not allowed to put fireworks in our neighborhood. So it was just, it wasn't great. Anyway. Oh yeah. So Shuiskai was then deposed by the Muscovites, but since the boyars did not want the false Dmitri to take power, since he wanted to make significant social changes, like basically 
they said that he was going to make radical social change. And nobody, none of the boyars wanted that because it would actually make their power if less stable. I all correctly going into this, it would make them less stable because one of the key things that he was doing in order to get a bunch of the peasants on his side was basically land reforms. Uh, also things for, for, for serfs to give them more rights and abilities um, so that they would have less obligations to their feudal lords effectively. Right. So basically the boyars were like, screw that guy. So they decided that they would accept the deal that was made between the boyars at Tushino and the Polish king Sigismund III. And so they decided to appoint the son of Sigismund, Vladislaw, as a new czar. So obviously everything is completely settled. We're at peace. Totally. Totally, yeah. This is the end of the time of troubles and nothing else bad could possibly happen whatsoever. There's You're no forgetting way. one thing. Vladislav, he is not a Romanov now, is he? So anyway. We don't know that. There's name changes that exist. <laughs> right, of course. Vlad, the Vladislav, Romans, the, the Romans would adopt him. Maybe the Romanovs Romanov. adopted him. Yeah, he was definitely, the czar was adopted by the Romanov family. You've practiced. To totally, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Dimitri too. <laughs> He was also betrayed by his supporters and just straight out kill. So we have peace. Everything's settled. Dimitri's gone. We have one czar. Poland, I guess, is just chilling now, right? Wrong. Sigismund yeah. decided, hey, my son is the czar, but I want absolute control of Russia. So he just continued on. He was like, screw you. Wait. I don't know what happened to his son. I didn't look into that. No, no. See, he, he, here's Did the issue. Did he just say, uh, you're not a good king. My turn. No, because Step he aside. hadn't taken power yet fully. That's the thing. They may have agreed to the deal, but he wasn't actually there ruling. The, the army was there and had been supporting him in order to be able to take everything over. But peace had actually not been settled yet. He wasn't enthroned. None of that had actually really happened. So instead of a, um, the, the term that you would have before is a, it's not a personal union. Because a personal union is a system of government in which you have two separate countries that are ruled by the same king. This is more of a situation of um, it's two countries that are ruled by a king who is set to inherit the other one. Um, so, I mean, okay. it's just standard. But that hadn't taken place yet. The, so, basically, the, his son was still back in Poland. I can't remember if he was in Poland or if he was riding he with the army, but he hadn't taken charge of the country. So they just decided they're going to go full swing ahead with their invasion anyway. And just take it all. Which is fair. Yeah. Like, why stop there? They obviously have no grounds to um, push back on you. Anyway, we all know the best way to unite a group that is currently fighting internally is to unite them against a common enemy. So that's exactly what happened. The Polish occupation of Moscow shocked much of Russia and soon ordinary people began to organize to get rid of the foreigners because all of a sudden they don't want foreigners to fight. They just want to fight. What all do you of mean? a sudden, like <laughs> these people, they've invaded. Uh, this is this is my burning husk of a shell of a house. What do you mean they can't have it? I remember how I said the second false Dmitry was killed. So in December 1610, his murder was celebrated by the Polish but it actually removed the cheap, uh, chief obstacle to unifying the Russian people against foreign intervention. A powerful but still disjointed patriotic movement slowly began to develop throughout the land and even in Moscow. Various Russian factions warily reached out to one another and with great difficulty coordinated operations with the hated Catholic Poles. Imagine you're, in so, you're down so bad you have to reach out to the people you hate. The yeah. most so all of these factions that have been trying to murder each other for quite literally a, almost a decade at this point, we're now like, crap, guys, we got to work together. Damn it. 
And that's pretty much how it would have gone for a lot of them. Now, of course, a number of them, even while all that is going, are still trying to stab each other in the back. Which is something that we're going to be seeing. Because once they get rid of the Polish people, who is going to take over? They have to think yeah, ahead. Exactly. I, I, I fully understand. But anyway, since you took over from writing here, how about you finish the episode? My throat is not used to this much reading. Oh, it's okay. Hey, I'm really proud of you for what you do- had done so far in here. And you did a really good job. So everyone send in positive emails telling her how good of a job she did because she got really into all this in the first place. And it made me really <laughs> happy. It's like, you know that feeling when you see... um. Like when you try to show someone a game or a movie or something and they actually get into it and how happy it makes you feel. That was me seeing how excited and flabbergasted she was getting and just looking at messed up Russian history. That was the same kind of feeling that I got. The thing is, I don't have the presentation gravitas that you have, you know, like I can read it or like tell the story, but I'm not like... Maybe not artificially, but you were genuinely excited about it, which in turn meant that you did a good job. That is fair. That is fair. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. So anyway, yeah, they try to unite against the Catholic Poles because that's what they have to do at this point. And so inside Moscow, there are protests against the, quote, Latin heretics, because you have to remember that this is the 1600s and religious divides between orthodoxy, uh, Protestantism, Catholicism, all that is in full rage at this point. And you have Patriarch Hermogen or Hermogen. I can't actually remember how to pronounce his name. So he gets thrown into prison. But before he starves to death, Hermogen then sends out letters to a bunch of different towns and the different factions and all the different groups, urging his fellow Orthodox Christians to rise up and throw out the evil Russian, or not evil Russian, the evil foreigners out of Russia. And it works. Well, sort of. Because people would unite and they would team up to go against the Poles. And over the year, you would see this very uneasy alliance very stressed that word uneasy because they were not very comfortable with one another. This would form up between a Russian commander by the name of Dmitry Bozarsky and a Cossack leader by the name of Ivan Zarutsky. Now, for anyone who isn't familiar with the Cossacks and what exactly that is, I need to clarify in the first place. The Cossacks were the steppe nomads that lived within Russia that had tentative autonomous rights within society. How is that cavalry? 
because they, they were Norse, they were nomads. They, so, so very good. Yeah. So they were, they were guys who they didn't live in any, well, they didn't have a house. It was the Cossacks would live in tents and migrate, migrate around the steppes of Russia with their herd animals and these kinds of things. But the Cossacks were always very difficult to govern because since they didn't just stay in one place in time, they were, they loved their freedom and individual abilities. Taxes. There's the problem. They oftentimes didn't want to pay taxes. Why would they pay taxes if they weren't staying there for exactly? So the whole Russian relation with the Cossacks was always a, um, it was always a relationship of we kind of hate each other, but they have to work with each other. And the Cossacks were subservient to Russia, but in many circumstances didn't do what Russia wanted because it, it was always very difficult well, time for them. Well, they could just leave if Russia pissed them off too much. Oh, it wasn't just that, though. Here's the big problem and what we would be talking about here later going into the episode. The major problem that Russia had with Cossacks is that Russia really oppressed its peasants. And when you oppress your peasants and you're not allowed to leave your land, what the peasants would oftentimes do is say, fuck it, and they would leave and go join the Cossacks. Oh. Think of it like this. Remember what would happen in some places in America where slaves would escape off the plantations and go join up with the Native Americans in a number of places? That was the equivalent of what would happen here, where serfs would abandon their land that was owned by the boyar and they would run off to join the Cossacks. Because serfdom was the worst. Oh, yeah. Exactly. And it was there for so long. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, so long. Like, why was it there for so long? What was the year that it got rid of? 1840-something? Was that when it got? Re- I cannot remember. I don't remember, but I do remember reading. I need to find the name of the book. And he just hated life because he was like, "Why is serfdom still here?" Like it was just wealthier man, and he just he was pissed off. Yeah, you know, it's a it was a terrible thing. So that that's the whole issue with the uh, with with the Cossacks, and they they are a really powerful force within Russian society at this point but they're very finicky and difficult to deal with and manage. So Pozarsky, or Pozarsky, Pozarsky, God dang, the names are going to mess with me. It is so much easier to pronounce things when you're not the one narrating I know, right? So Pozarsky would go and attempt to try and liberate Moscow in March, but after some awful street-to-street fighting in which the Poles would end up burning down a lot of the outer city, Pozarsky's patriots were then forced to retreat and regroup, And by June of 1611, the group had managed to form a representative council of the entire realm to coordinate military operations against the foreigners. But here's the problem. Due to the drastic political differences between the different groups, uh, rivalries between the different leaders, the alliance overall just fell apart. Very quickly, the different factions began to fight with one another. And because, you know, that's how everyone seemed everything seems to go in Russia at all times, this was nothing different than the usual that they'd already been facing. And this infighting would then just allow their enemies to do even more. Because as they turned on each other, this then allowed the Poles to go in and capture Smolensk in June of 1611, and the Swedes then went and captured Novgorod in July. So, some Russians then asked the king of Sweden to consider putting his son on the Russian throne. So now we're going with another guy But most of the Russians in this group did not want anything but a true Russian to take charge. What is it with all of these other nations deciding to put their sons on the throne? Who was going to rule their country? Oh, it's the monarchies at the time here. And they're talking about putting them on the throne because once the leader dies, either another brother would be in charge. So it would be allied and you'd have separate kings or you would see the creation of a personal union. 
two countries ruled by one monarch. In many cases, you'd see certain circumstances where, remember the Habsburgs? Yeah. Well, Austria-Hungary. You had the king of, it's the Archduke of Austria and the king of Hungary. Did they just have a, can we do a Habsburgs episode? Oh, yeah. Because I just need to know, did they just cycle through family members on different thrones, mixing and matching? Like, yeah, what that's occurred? actually a phenomenal way to put it. That's a very accurate, yeah. Because I'm just thinking they're like, okay, well, you're unmarried. You have a young cousin over there. Let's take her. And they, did they just swap seat continuously? Yeah, pretty much. Cool. Let's yeah. do that episode. We'll go into way more detail for it. We could actually do a rise of the Habsburgs and like their whole thing for how that happened. I have like four episodes I'm working on right now. That's not, it's not going great. Okay. Well, I will definitely look at that one. Either way, though the other powers are starting to make gains, all is not lost. By 1611, or late going into 1611, a new political movement started to take shape in the Novgorod area. Because there, there was a butcher, a guy by the name of Kuzma Minin. And he managed to convince a number of citizens to raise money for an army to liberate Russia and to restore order to the realm. And Minin goes and chooses another guy to take charge of military matters, and he chooses Prince Pozarsky to be the commander-in-chief of the force. And then Minin himself would become the treasurer with a lot of powers to be able to kind of dictate things. So while Pozarsky is the overall military commander, the guy with a lot of the authority behind the scenes is Minin himself. So a bunch of Russian towns and villages and others very quickly start to join up and Yaroslav becomes the headquarters of their provisional government. Bozarsky does succeed pretty well, actually, in getting the Cossacks and others to join his growing force. And once Zarutsky broke with the National Liberation Movement, like that other rival group that was also trying to drive the foreigners out of Russia and rode off south, this then allowed Pozarsky to advance on Moscow itself. Finally, they're making some progress. The Polish garrison in Moscow would surrender on October 27th, 1612. And as soon as the capital gets liberated, just all these urgent, unprecedented messages are then sent throughout the entire country, calling for representatives of all free men. Not serfs, mind you. Serfs don't matter. They, they are worthless. Serfs are not free either. Yeah, serfs they're are very busy. They're not people, basically. That's, that, that's, that's what happens here in Russia. That's how they'd be treated for hundreds of years. They're less than people. They're, they're, it's bad. Either way, all the nobles, the gentry, so like, like the minor nobility, the soldiers, townspeople, clergy, merchants, anyone who actually kind of matters is supposed to be sending representatives to this place in Moscow and they're going to hold something that is a representative assembly of all of these people in order to elect a leader. It's, a, it's an event or a thing called a Zemsky Sobor, or meaning assembly of the land, which, as the name implies, assembles people from all groups that matter across the land to be able to do things. The thing that they're going to be doing is electing a new czar. So under intense pressure from the Cossacks, who by then at this point, remember how important they are and how influential are, they make up almost half of the military that they're using because you're talking about how important cavalry is at this time, especially with Russia and who has a lot of the fighting power. They, under their influence and direction, get Filaret Romanov's son, Mikhail, elected on February 7th, 1613, which I should specify who that is because we have not actually said this before. But Fyodor, not related to the first Fyodor at all. There's Was a it lot just of, a common name like it, Charlie? Exactly. Or Stephen? A Louis, 
uh, all the different things that you're going to see. Yeah, exactly. Is Stephen the American version of Louis? God, no. It was just at our former business place where there were seven Stevens that worked in a place that only had Steven, 40 people working in it. you can walk into any, any business in town and yell Stephen and one dude who looks just like you is going to turn around and say hi. Wow. I've done it before. Oh, yeah? Well, yeah. Okay. I've also mistaken you as random people in Walmart. Oh, like when we you were cannot, initially dating? Yeah. You can't take me to Walmart because everybody looks like you, which I think is an insult. I don't know. I don't know how to process that. <laughs> But I'm worried regardless, because you're either saying something about a general group of people or you're saying something that is implying something negative about me and like having nothing that distinguishes me. But I love Walmart, so it, it, it works it out. It balances out. Yeah. Okay. So this guy is Fyodor Nikitich Romanov, and he is a Russian boyar who, after a temporary disgrace, managed to rise up to become the patriarch of Moscow, like the most important important position that you could have within the Orthodox Church. And he becomes Philaret, the de facto ruler of Russia during the reign of his son, Mikhail Fyodorovic. Fyodorovic. God dang it, the names and he would mess with me. This guy was basically the Russian Orthodox version of the Pope. And because it's the Orthodox Church, remember how we're talking about his son? It's not a scandalous thing like in the case of Catholicism, because within Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, priests can get married and have children. So that, that, that's a whole thing. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. With his rise, or specifically that of his son, the time of troubles would officially come to an end with the crowning of Tsar Mikhail on July 21st, 1613. But it wasn't just going to end there because it would take several more years in order to be able to try and restore the land. While bureaucrats and members of the Assembly of Land were trying to build the Russian government, Tsar would dispatch military forces to destroy Zarutsky and the other like pretenders and other forces that were still a threat to his throne and they were finally captured and executed in 1614. And that's just internal issues. Externally, you still had the Poles and the Swedes, and kicking them out was going to be a much bigger problem. Only after a Swedish invasion was stalled by the defense of Puskov in 1615, uh, or rather 1615 to 1616, did Gustavus Adolphus, and yes, we're talking about that Gustavus Adolphus, the great warrior king of Sweden, did he finally agree to negotiate with Tsar Mikhail? But it wasn't great, still. The Treaty of Stolbovo in 1617 would restore Novgorod to the Russians, but the Swedes would keep enough of their captured territory 
to block the Russians from having access to the Baltic Sea, which is really big. Because when you no longer have access to the Baltic Sea, this meant that the only trade that Russia was able to go through would be like heading down into Crimea, which could then be blocked off by things in Turkey with um, uh, the Dardanelles Strait. Or you go through the north, and that means that your port is frozen for like six or seven or eight months out of the year. There is no way you can use it throughout the entire year, which is going to drastically slow you down. They would not have access to the Baltic Sea again until the time of Peter the Great almost 100 years later. Something that over the years would isolate Russia to a degree, not allowing it to trade or modernize nearly to the same level as other European powers. So that action would slow them down drastically. And after 1613, the Polish armies would try repeatedly to put Tsar Wydyslaw on the Russian throne. But they were never able to do this, despite making some advances at different points. The defense of Moscow in 1618 by Prince Bozarski and the capital civilian population and the Cossacks finally convinced the Poles to just negotiate. So they didn't get everything. They didn't take over the entire country. But as a result, Russia did still lose land to Poland. Poland gained a bunch of Western Russian towns, including Smolensk from the Truce of uh, Delino in 1618. But at the end, Dilaret Romanov was able to be released from Polish captivity because he was in captivity at that time, despite being, you know, patriarch. Very important hostage, considering you have the father of the czar in, in do you captivity. Think they had like really fancy prisons like they do for wealthier people and. Oh, yeah. The the, U.S. The, the, so maybe he played like golf in his downtime. I can't remember the circumstances specifically for what would happen with him. Oh, did they keep him in a dungeon like in the movies? I don't remember. I, I remember when I was doing the research for this that it was talking about his captivity, but I didn't. I, I, you I, didn't think that was important? No, I didn't put that you in there. You didn't want to know if he had caviar for lunch? Well, he definitely didn't have caviar for, for any the of The Russian version of caviar. The Polish version. Let's see, since we're talking about fish eggs, would that just be the Swedish raw version? meat? Considering that they would have strips of raw meat that would be prepared. That sounds was, really good. Some raw salmon. Uh, Delicious. J- Gabby, your love of sushi is, is overflowing into the podcast. As it should. <laughs> As it should. Okay. So that he, he gets released and his release, considering that it's the final um, last foreign power to be really involved in Russian affairs at this time, that in many circumstances will mark the real end of the time of troubles, even though its technical ending was five years earlier. So the time of troubles, which had been a nightmare for the Russian people, was finally over. But even with it being done, the economy of the entire state was in ruins. Like, the Russian countryside was shattered. It was a shell of what it was before. And as a result, the early Romanovs faced a lot of serious fiscal problems, taxation issues, um, being able to grow enough food. The conditions of the overtaxed townspeople, the serfs, and the gentry would only get worse going into the 17th century. And this is really an interesting detail. The terrifying experience about all of this and the time of troubles is that it really changed how a lot of people were viewing stuff for the Russian monarchy I'm sure as a they concept. Didn't take them for granted and replaceable and just something they can toss aside for their own personal gain anymore. Because if you do that to your own leaders, you weaken your own country. Correct. So after this experience with weak rulers and powerful nobles dividing the country, you saw an increased push 
towards strengthening what was already a pretty powerful ruler in the first place, at least technically speaking. But you started to see an increase in more autocratic authority of the czar and also the patriarch that centralized authority under the rule of the monarch. If only they weren't like Christian following religions, we could have just said the king, the czar, was the god, you know. That would have helped, I think. In a number of different cases, they would be saying that they were appointed by God, which they would. For the grace, a lot of them. for the might of the Lord. For the home of the holy. Are, are we just saying Sabaton <laughs> lyrics now? Going no, into this? I would never. So yeah, that image of the autocratic ideal of a Russian monarchy that we would look at later, like when we think of the authoritarian autocratic Russian state. Yeah, that, that would specifically come about from this time period. And that would drastically slow down the development of what you would see of more individual rights and capitalistic development within society as it remained more feudal and top down, like control heavy, I guess you could say. The whole thing was a mess, an absolute god awful mess that resulted in the death of. I mean, we already started with a third of the population before with uh, the famine, with the famine. So. I don't even know what I would say for estimates in here. Like a half bunch, the population that they potentially had lot. at the time. So many people. But I guess it would be slightly easier to rule since most people died. This, this is true. Well, considering when everything gets broken for people. And remember, as I said, they would have severe fiscal problems following this. Well, we don't really care about all that. I mean, the Romanovs are in power, right? And after all... Nothing bad ever is going to happen to the Romanovs. Russia's fixed forever. Yeah, they ruled for 300 years. As you said, they're probably in like, they're probably in like Cabo or something. Like, you know, just, just chilling out with their descendants. Anastasia? Yeah, Anastasia? Oh, yeah, I yeah. really want to go totally into a lot of the conspiracies about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. They weren't shot in a ditch or anything. But were they really? On that note, we're going to go ahead and end the story here today. If you want to hear the story of the Romanovs and how things ended for the family, then, uh, yeah, look forward to a future episode. And before we go, for this week's family history, we have someone who has sent in, um, well, a, a whole list here. It's the fake pancake, which I'm, I'm, it's not their name. I know that that's not their name. So I'm going to go ahead and say that because I know some people from the beginning, when I start reading things, they go like, oh, hey, please don't say this, but I've, I've already said their name aloud like in the very <laughs> beginning, and you know that I do that a lot, and then we end up, having to end up having to go cut it. Either way, I thought this was really cool, and I pulled this one up because it says, Hello, Sakuya and Gabby. I would like to share a fam family history story. Daniel Boone, like as in the Daniel Boone, is my ninth great-grandfather on my dad's side. So since you're related to Daniel Boone, I have a question for you. Do you get like free admission to the National Park? At the very least, right? He Daniel gets Boone one National tree Park. named after him every single time at the Maybe Daniel Maybe every Forest. single, yeah, every time a new ancestor is born, they plant a tree. That could be a cool thing. National parks, if you're listening. You know, I don't think idea. it's a thing, but I really want that to be a tradition because it's literally the idea <laughs> of growing a family tree. And that's a cool little pun. At, okay, I, well, I'm if you're going to name a park after someone, you might as well. You know? It's true. It's true. But I know I'm getting sidetracked. Okay. So as a kid, I love doing my history projects on him. And I would like to share one of my favorite stories about him. So as a teenager, Boone was known in his village for being tough and fearless. When he was around 16, he and a few other boys went hunting in the forest alone, and as they were hiking around looking for their prey, a panther came upon the group. The other boys ran and hid, but Boone simply aimed his rifle at the cat, waited for it to pounce, and shot it. He then walked over to it, skinned it, ordered the meat out for the village to eat, and that's it. 
Daniel Boone is one of my favorite historical hunters, along with Teddy Roosevelt, which, oh my God, yes, there's so many things with Teddy Roosevelt. I think it's estimated that during a two-year trip, he harvested over 500 elk or deer and over 1,000 beavers. I've heard him referred to as a professional poacher since there wasn't really any hunting regulations back then. I love listening to your podcast every Friday and watching your YouTube videos during the week. If I wasn't leaving for Alaska soon, I would definitely already be a patron. Thanks for the great content, Rock Harper. Okay, so not Fake Pancake is a name. But my friend, <laughs> I wish you all the best luck there in Alaska. And I hope you a good rest of your time. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for all of you who have listened. And remember to send us in your family histories because we always love learning about new people. And don't forget to leave us a review because reviews do help the podcast grow and they show that they let us know what you like exactly. and what you don't like. So we appreciate everyone for joining us and listening in here today. I hope you all have a good rest of your day. Thank you very much, my hose. And as we said, check out Patreon for ad free episodes and bonus episodes. And simultaneously, don't forget to check out our coffee. And if you want to go to Italy with us or Japan or anything for that matter, go check out the description because we're leading some trips and we look forward to seeing you all in person. Goodbye, everyone. Have a good rest of your day. Bye. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.